So we are in Ezekiel. We finished up chapter 22 last time. And we're on to 23. And where we are in the book is 23 and 24 are the last of the chapters where God, through the prophet, is chastising Judah and Jerusalem. And then, starting in 25, he then turns his attention to the nations around Israel. And that will go on for a little while before we finally start getting to some hopeful passages toward the end of the book. But these passages through here are pretty severe, and they're pretty direct, and they're really kind of a downer. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, there are two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore in their youth. There, their breasts were pressed and virgin bosoms handled. I'm trying to say that three times. Ahola was the name of the elder, and Aholibah the name of her sister. They became mine, and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Ahola is Samaria, and Aholibah is Jerusalem. The words Ahola and Aholibah both have to do with tent, and I will get you the precise definitions here. Ahola literally means her own tent, and Aholibah means woman of the tent, or the tent is in her, or my tent is in her. Ahola is the northern kingdom, and Aholibah is the southern kingdom. And one of the ways you can interpret this is the southern kingdom had the temple, which would have been the tent of God, if you will. The northern kingdom went into idolatry. They had a rival tabernacle. And you remember that when the tribes split, the northern tribes put a golden calf at Bethel and another golden calf up north at Lachish. What they were doing is they were mimicking the Holy of Holies. Because if you look in the Holy of Holies, inside the box... You have the testimony of God, and God sits in the mercy seat. And on each side, you have a cherub. So God sits between two cherubim. And one of the things that we have speculated on, and notice how I said that, speculated, I think the reason that Israel keeps coming up with golden calves is because a golden calf looks just like a cherub. Remember when we went through the early part of Ezekiel, we had those two descriptions of the four beings that were around the Merkava, the chariot of God. If you compare those two descriptions, it becomes fairly obvious that a cherub has the head of a calf or an ox. This is Johnnyology. You may do with it whatever you wish. I think that the reason golden calves keep recurring is because what they're trying to do is construct cherubim. So what the northern kingdom did is they mimicked the Holy of Holies. You've got a cherub down here. You've got a cherub up here. And then you've got the temple in the middle. So you have cherub, cherub, God. And if you look inside the Holy of Holies, you have cherub, cherub, God. What they're trying to do is visually recreate that. You may do anything you want to with that, but it makes sense to me. What I'm suggesting to you is this. Her own tent is the idolatrous northern kingdom. My tent is the temple. And I think that's why he has chosen these two names. Verse 5. Ahola 
played the whore while she was mine, and she lusted after her lovers, the Assyrian warriors, clothed in purple, governors and commanders, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. She bestowed her whoring upon them, the choicest men of Assyria, all of them, and she defiled herself with all the idols of everyone after whom she lusted. She did not give up her whoring that she had begun in Egypt, for in her youth men had lain with her and handled her virgin bosom and poured out their whoring lust upon her. Therefore I delivered her into the hands of her lovers, into the hands of the Assyrians, after whom she lusted. These uncovered her nakedness, they seized her sons and her daughters, and as for her, they killed her with a sword, and she became a byword among women when judgment had been executed upon her. So what he's saying is two things. When I took Israel out of Egypt, they came out of an idolatrous place, and they never gave up their idolatry. Remember, we had the golden calf in the wilderness. Very soon after they had taken the land, they started doing what God had told them not to do, which is to say they started inquiring after the practices of the people in the land. And they started going into idolatry. You read about all that in the book of Judges. After the two kingdoms split, each of them conducted her own foreign policy. And they were rivals not only to each other, but they were rivals as they dealt with the nations around them. And what happened was the northern kingdom, Israel, made an alliance with Assyria. And after a while, the alliance began to chafe and they tried to break away. And when they tried to break away, that just naturally annoyed the Syrians, Assyrians. By the way, there are two nations up there. One is Syria and the other is Assyria. If I slur and you don't know which one I'm talking about, by all means, raise your hand and I will clarify. Assyria has always been the more powerful and the greater nation. So what happens is Israel or Judah will ally itself with various people depending on who they've got problems with. And God regards that as adultery. Now we're talking military alliances here. Or diplomatic alliances is a better way to say it. And why do you suppose God would be just a bit chapped about that? And why would he call that whoring? He is their sword and shield. So when they cease to put their trust in him and start putting their trust in alliances with other people, God regards that as not putting their trust in him. In addition to which they were doing idolatry and all that kind of stuff, which didn't make him any better disposed to them. So what happened was when they finally rebelled and tried to break their alliance with Assyria, the Assyrians came down and destroyed the northern kingdom. As we all know the story, the Assyrian policy at that point was when you conquered somebody, you picked everybody up and moved them somewhere else, which meant that you got the land, you got the infrastructure, you got all that kind of stuff, but you didn't have all of those crufty natives that kept making trouble for you. You took them and you moved them out and you scattered them so that they would not be a political force against you in the future, and they transplanted people in there. And that, by the way, is the reason why the Jews do not have anything to do with the Samaritans. You see that tension in uh, the New Testament where Yeshua goes and talks to a Samaritan woman and the Samaritan woman says, you're not supposed to talk to us. And the Samaritans are regarded by the Jews as transplanted people who were put in there by the Assyrians to replace the northern kingdoms. They do not regard them as Hebrews. 
even though they follow the Torah, interestingly enough. That was the sanding off of the northern kingdom, and that happened about 722 B.C. So anyway, verse 11. I'm back in Ezekiel 23, verse 11. Her sister Aholabah saw this, and she became more corrupt than her sister, in her lust and in her whoring, which was worse than that of her sister. She lusted after the Assyrians, governors and commanders, warriors clothed in full armor, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. And I saw that she was defiled. They took the same away. But she carried her whoring further. She saw men portrayed on the wall, the images of the Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion, wearing belts on their waist with flowing turbans on their heads, all of them having the appearance of officers, the likeness of, a, of Babylonians whose native, native land is Chaldea. When she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messages <coughs> to them in Chaldea. And the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love, and they defiled her with their whoring lust, after she was defiled by them, she turned from them in disgust. And what happened was the southern kingdom made an alliance with the Assyrians, then broke it off and turned to the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. But Israel is intimately involved in all of the intrigue that goes back and forth as these empires are sloshing back and forth across the Middle East. Verse 18. When she carried on her whoring so openly and flaunted her nakedness, I turned in disgust from her, as I had turned in disgust from her sister. Yet she increased her whoring, remembering the days of her youth when she played the whore in the land of Egypt, and lusted after her paramours there, whose members were like those of donkey. There just isn't any delicate way to talk about this. Whose members were like those of donkeys, and whose issue was like that of horses. Thus... You longed for the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians handled your bosom and pressed your young breasts. I mean, if you, if you read this stuff anywhere but in the Bible, you Not would be censored. God is clearly not pleased with, I mean, he, he is talking about her in very crude and disgusting and disgusted terms. There's nothing delicate about this. I don't think I need to elaborate. 22. Therefore, O Oholibah, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will stir up against you your lovers, from whom you turned in disgust, and I will bring them up against you from every side, the Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Pekod and Shoah and Koah, and all the Assyrians with them, desirable young men, governors and commanders, all of them, officers and men of renown, all of them riding on horses. Pekod, Shoah, and Koah, according to my sources, they are sub-tribes, if you will, over in Babylon. Babylon is composed of smaller chunks, and, and these are three of them. Notice also the Assyrians are coming with them, having been conquered by the Babylonians. 24, and they shall come against you from the north with chariots and wagons and a host of peoples. They shall set themselves against you on every side with buckler, shield, and helmet. And I will commit the judgment to them and they will judge you according to their judgments. And I will direct my jealousy against you, that they may deal with you in fury. They shall cut off your nose and your ears, and your survivors shall fall by the sword. This is grim stuff. But one of the things that was done in Assyria 
to an adulterous woman is that her face was disfigured so that she would not be attractive to anybody again. And so they shall cut off your nose and your ears. This is by way of that same thing. What's going to happen here is they are going to make you so that you are not desirable to any man ever again is what God is saying to Israel here. Your destruction is going to be so complete that nobody is going to be interested in you anymore. See, I'm still in 25. They shall seize your sons and your daughters, and your survivors shall be devoured by fire. And they shall also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewels. Thus I will put an end to your lewdness and your whoring begun in the land of Egypt, so that you shall not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt anymore. So this started in Egypt. It's never really gone away. The other thing that's interesting is, as an aside, and this is rabbinic, which isn't to say I don't think it's right. You know, you read this stuff, and the first thing you could think is, ah, how can you be so stupid? Especially Israel just having seen God blow away the northern kingdom. You know, wouldn't we have a come to Jesus meeting? And they did get better for a while. But the other thing is this idolatry. I mean, you know, every time somebody put up an idol, it was the thing was immediately plastered with Hebrews. I mean, they, they, they just flocked to the things. And that is not the case anymore. So, for example, if somebody were to walk in here with a chainsaw on a stump and, you know, start carving something out of a stump and spreading gold leaf all over it, I would have no temptation whatsoever to worship that. No interest. And neither would any Jew. And what the rabbis say is after the Babylonian exile, which was because of idolatry, those who came back prayed to God and asked that he take away this urge to idolatry. And he did. So the reason that they aren't whoring after idols anymore is because God took that urge away from them at their request. Now, they lost some stuff in that process because the idolatrous impulse is also the same impulse that causes you to cleave to God. So it wasn't just the case that, okay, we'll take that away and everything will be the same, but things are not the same as they were, but they don't have the problem with idolatry. And the way they describe it, which, again, I think has a lot of merit, is the evil impulse or the impulse to idolatry or any of those things that are part of our nature. It's like having an adversary that you can't kill. So if your next door neighbor, for example, has a dog that poops in your yard and you talk to him and you yell at him and you put up fences and every day there's dog poop in your yard and you can't kill him. I mean, <laughs> you know, they frown on you killing neighbors when their dogs poop in your yard. So there's nothing you can do about it. And it's the same thing with the evil inclination. It's always there. It never gives up. You can't kill it. It's relentless. So what God does when he looks at a relentless enemy like that, he doesn't expect you to have total victory because you never will. You're human. What he does is he expects you to keep trying. And what repentance does is repentance is the hospital that you go to to recover from the wounds that you have inflicted upon yourself with your evil inclination. God's source of healing is repentance. But by the time the nation had been sent off into exile for idolatry, God decided, okay, we've learned this lesson. There's nothing to be gained. 
by having them to continue to struggle against this thing that they can never ultimately beat. That lesson has been learned. So now we'll go on to the next lesson and we'll take away this desire to worship idols. And as far as I know, there is no sect of Judaism that has anything to do with idols. They're just not interested. So again, that's all rabbinic, Talmudic. You know, you can do with that whatever you want. But I find it interesting that they get sent into exile for idolatry. And that seems to have gone away. So the exile has served its purpose. And the thing about exile is exile has within it the seeds of redemption. In other words, God sends you to the place that is going to cure the reason he sent you there. So if you're going into exile for idolatry, where do you suppose he's going to send you? Idol central, Babylon. That's where they make them. Babylon is the source of idolatry. Okay, you guys want idols? We're going to give you idols. And he sends them to Babylon. So the current exile, the rabbis say, and I agree with this, was because of baseless hatred, Lashon Hurrah, hatred of brethren against brother, treating God casually. Okay, so I will send you into baseless hatred. And we have the Spanish Inquisition. We have the Holocaust. We have over and over and over again Jews being hated and slaughtered simply because they're Jews for no other reason. So God says, you guys going to do baseless hatred? Okay, we'll do baseless hatred for a while until we get that out of your system. So you can do with all that whatever you want. It makes a lot of sense to me. 28. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will deliver you into the hands of those whom you hate, into the hands of those from whom you turned in disgust. And they shall deal with you in hatred, and take away all the fruit of your labor, and leave you naked and bare, and the nakedness of your whoring shall be uncovered. Your lewdness and your whoring have brought this upon you, because you played the whore with the nations, and defiled yourself with their idols. You have gone the way of your sister, therefore I will give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord God, You shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation. The cup of your sister Samaria, you shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, you yourself must bear the consequences of your lewdness and whoring. The thing to understand about all this, as grim as it is, is it is measure for measure. 36. The Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ohola and Holibah? Declare to them their abominations. For they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery, and they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they bore to me. Moreover, this they have done to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbath. For when they had slaughtered their children in sacrifice to their idols, on the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it. And behold, this is what they did in my house." So what it's saying here is they would go and offer up their children as sacrifices 
and then they would turn around in the same day and go up and offer sacrifices to God in his sanctuary. Hedging their bets is one way to describe it. The other one is, well, there are lots of paths to God. All of these things that people do to dilute the worship of God, all the rationalizations, what you're seeing is being acted out right here. We were talking in yeshiva today with the, the youngsters. Proverb 21, 27. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? And the example we used was from Ezekiel here. And what you have in Ezekiel and what this proverb is talking about is when a wicked man sacrifices, it's an abomination. And Yeshua talks about that. You've got stuff against your brother. Get yourself cleaned up and repent and so forth before you come into my temple and bring a sacrifice. In the first case, you have a wicked person who has done wicked things. And, you know, the litany of wickedness in Ezekiel is <laughs> pretty long. And when that person brings a sacrifice, that's an abomination. Yet there is something worse. And the something worse is when a wicked person, as are the priests in Jerusalem at the time of Ezekiel, these wicked priests are turning around and using their church office to justify the murder and oppression of the state. So what you have is the government, the princes, if you will, who are acting violently and wickedly. They're oppressing widows. Or they're doing all the things that are abhorred by God. And the clergy is turning around and whitewashing that with church services. In other words, these wicked people are coming into the church services and, and the priest there is then saying, oh, you did all these wicked things. Well, I'll offer a sacrifice and it's okay. That's what this proverb is saying. As bad as it is for a wicked person to bring a sacrifice, it's even worse when someone brings it with evil intent, which is what the priests were doing. When we go to the end times, one of the things that's going to happen is that the Antichrist is going to be reinforced and validated by the false prophet. It's going to be religion that puts the stamp of legitimacy on him and is going to say that all of this stuff that this guy is doing is from God. And that's the pattern that's put back here in Proverbs, and it's the pattern that's going on in Ezekiel, and it's the pattern that goes on throughout history is you have to have a religious veneer of respectability to the thuggery that happens via the government. Back in Ezekiel. They even sent for men to come from afar, to whom a messenger was sent, and behold, they came. For them you bathed yourself, painted your eyes, and adorned yourself with ornaments. You sat on a stately couch, at a table spread before it, on which you had placed my incense and my oil. So not only are you a whore, what you're doing is you're taking all of the stuff I bought you because I love you and you're turning around and you are giving it to those with whom you are playing the whore. It's not enough that you're unfaithful to me, but you're going into my bank account and you're paying for the guy to do it. All of this is insult compounded upon insult to God. There isn't anything pleasant about this. 42. The sound of a carefree multitude was with her. And with men of the common sort, drunkards were brought from the wilderness and they put bracelets on the hand of the women and beautiful crowns on their heads. Then I said, after who, who was worn out by adultery, now they will continue to use her as a whore, even her. 
In other words, when she finally gets tired of her adultery, God says, uh, well, you're not as tired of it as you thought you were, because it's going to keep going. For they have gone into her as men go into a prostitute. Thus they went into Ahola and to Aholibah, lewd women. But righteous men shall pass judgment on them with the sentence of adulteresses and with the sentence of women who shed blood because they are adulteresses and their blood is on their hands. 46. For thus says the Lord God, Bring up a vast host against them and make them an object of terror and plunder. And the host shall stone them and cut them down with their swords. They shall kill their sons and their daughters and burn up their houses. Thus I will put an end to lewdness in the land, that all women may take warning and not commit lewdness as you have done. And they shall return your lewdness upon you, and you shall bear the penalty of your sinful idolatry, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So notice, and they shall return your lewdness upon you, and you shall bear the penalty for your sinful idolatry. So again, this is just turning right back on you what you did. Combination of measure for measure and... If you guys want to do idols, we'll send you where they do idols seriously. 24. In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid seed to Jerusalem this very day and utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, thus says the Lord God, this is... January 15th, 588 B.C. And we have it confirmed from several sources. Thus says the Lord God, Set on the pot, set it on. Pour in water also. Put in it the pieces of meat, all the good pieces, the thigh and the shoulder. Fill it with choice bones. Take the choicest one of the flock. Pile the logs under it. Boil it well. Seethe also its bones in it. Remember we had the business, the parable of the pot earlier on. I don't remember what chapter it was, but earlier in Ezekiel. And the proverb that was being bandied about in Jerusalem is Jerusalem is the pot and we are the meat. Which was to say we are safe inside the walls of our city. So God is saying here, you want pot metaphors? There's another one. So we'll do a different pot metaphor. You wanted the metaphor of pots, we'll do pots. Now, we see that same thing also in Jeremiah 1, which is also about this same event. So if you go to Jeremiah 1, 1 1.13, the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. The Lord said to me, out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, and every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls, all around, and against all the cities of Judah. Jeremiah is writing about the Babylonian exile. Ezekiel is writing from exile. So one of them is in the land, Jeremiah, and the other one is in Babylon. But they're both writing about the same event. And they're both using this same pot metaphor. Verse 6, I'm back in Ezekiel. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it, and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. For the blood she has shed is in her midst. 
She put it on the bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust. First off, going back to the pot metaphor where we're safe inside the pot, God is looking inside this pot and he's seeing it all corroded and nasty inside. So he's looking inside the pot and sees the translation here is corrosion, and that may be a correct translation. I sort of think of it as got scum and crud on it that's been baked into it and has never been cleaned and it's just really yucky and disgusting. Left on the fire too long and the stew has had all of its moisture wick away and it's hard and yucky and nasty. And then for the blood she has shed in her midst, she put it on a bare rock. The Torah says that if you shed blood, and this is in the context of an animal, not human blood, but if you shed the blood of an animal, what you're to do is you pour the blood out on the ground and you're to cover it up with dirt. What this says, verse 7, for the blood she has shed is in her midst. She put it on the bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust. In other words, she did not handle blood properly. Now, we've seen before that the blood we're talking about and God is really concerned about here is human blood. And what he's saying here is, first off, you're shedding innocent blood, and that's bad. But in shedding the blood, you're also not handling the blood properly. You're putting it out on a rock where it can be seen instead of covering it up. It's thoroughly corrupt. Verse 8, to rouse my wrath, to take vengeance, I have set on the bare rock the blood she has shed, that it may not be covered. So God has said, since you didn't handle it properly, I'm going to put it up in a place on a rock where it can't be handled properly. Again, one of these things, are you going to do it that way? Okay, we'll do it that way. I mean, it's, it's very much that kind of a flavor. Verse 9, therefore, thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city. I also will make the pile great. Heap on the logs, kindle the fire, boil the meat well, mix in the spices, and let the bones be burned up. Oh, and by the way, back up here in verse 6, where it says, take it out piece after piece without making any choice. What I'm inferring that that means is everybody goes. Remember, we've talked about Israel has come to the place where everybody goes. The city is going to be destroyed. Righteous and wicked both are going to go. Now, we know that the righteous have been marked by God, and he will take care of them, but they ain't staying in Jerusalem. So their righteousness was insufficient to spare the city, just as Lot's righteousness was insufficient to spare Sodom. Verse 10, heap on the logs, kindle the fire, boil the meat well, mix in the spices, and let the bones be burned up. Then set it empty upon the coals, that it may become hot, and its copper may burn, that its uncleanliness may be melted in it, and its corrosion consumed. The only thing that is going to clean this pot is we are going to put it in a really hot fire, and we're going to burn all the corruption out of it. We're going to burn it back down to bare metal. Kind of like an iron skillet. You put it in the oven, and you get really, really hot, and you finally burn everything out of it, and then you start over and reseason it. Exactly so. Twelve. She has wearied herself with toil. Its abundant corrosion does not go out of it, into the fire with its corrosion. On account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleaned you, and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness, you shall not be cleansed any more till I have satisfied my fury upon you. In other words, I gave you stuff by which you may get yourself cleaned up. That's what the Torah is. 
those who think that the Torah is harsh and legalistic don't understand the Torah. Because what the Torah does is it gives you remedies of what you do when you screw up. It tells you what the rules are, and then tells you what to do when you break the rules. Both what to do and what to do when you break are part of the Torah. The remedy is every bit as much as part of the Torah as are the rules. And what God is saying here is not only did you break my Torah, you broke it in that you didn't take advantage of the remedies that I had to get you cleaned up. So you violated all the rules, that was bad enough. But then you didn't take advantage of the provision that I gave you to get cleaned up. You haven't cleaned the pot. Verse 14, I am the Lord, I have spoken, it shall come to pass. I will do it, I will not go back, I will not spare, I will not relent. According to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord God. Third time he said it, measure for measure. There's nothing that's going on here that you haven't brought upon yourself. Verse 15, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke, yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And on the next morning I did as I was commanded. This is just grim. God knows what he's doing and I don't. You sort of weep for Ezekiel, because here's this guy giving these very harsh and unpopular prophecies. You know he hasn't got a friend in the world. And then God takes his wife away from him. It, it's tough being Ezekiel. It really is. And I don't know why God did that. But I do know, as we'll see in a minute, that Ezekiel, because of that, was able to speak very passionately and effectively. I'm sure God has sorted it out with Ezekiel. And God has wiped away every tear. And Ezekiel, at the end of the day, is just fine. Man, verse 19, And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things mean for us, that you are acting thus? You're looking weird there, Ezekiel. Then I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul. And your sons and your daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. Your turban shall be on your head and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus shall Ezekiel be to you a sign. According to all that he has done, you shall do. When this comes, then you shall know that I am the Lord. So what he's saying is, just as Ezekiel has lost his wife, given what he's been doing, i got to believe this is the last person in the world that will talk to the guy. How would you like to be around somebody like Ezekiel if you were in the spiritual state of Israel? I mean, it just wouldn't be pleasant to be around this guy. And so you, you can't imagine he had any friends. Then God takes his wife away. It's just, it's just horrible. Then God says... I will profane my sanctuary. In other words, God says, I am going to take down my own temple. I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power. You have been exalting yourself as being the chosen ones of God, 
Remember we talked earlier that Judah was standing on the promises of God? God promises this land, the northern kingdom is gone. Woo! More for us. Right? Because we know the promises of God are forever and they're, and they're going to come to pass. So this must mean we just got richer. So the pride of their power is the temple in their midst. That's the thing they're holding on to. And God says, I'm going to profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul. Again, he's talking to people in exile. What is their yearning? To go back to Jerusalem. And he says, I'm fixing to destroy that. And you're going to understand what Ezekiel is going through right now. It may perhaps have been the case that when people around him saw his wife die, that they said, oh, Ezekiel finally got his. As in, you know, this guy's been telling us all this stuff. And of course, we're not nearly that bad. You know, the guy's just a fundamentalist weirdo freak. And look, God's finally pulled him up short. And, of course, we see from the passage that that's not, in fact, what's happening. And when things happen to people, you need to be real careful about trying to help them figure out where God is in all this, because it may very well not be obvious. 25. As for you, son of man, surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes, and their soul's desire, and also their sons and daughters, on that day a fugitive will come to you to report to you the news. On that day your mouth will be open to the fugitive, you shall speak, and be no longer mute. So you will be assigned to them, that they will know that I am the Lord. As I say, Ezekiel got to write a whole great big part of the Bible. I don't envy him a bit. This guy really had a tough way to go. Next week we'll at least turn to somebody else. Okay, <laughs> it's still going to be grim, but we're going to turn away from Israel and we're going to go after the Ammonites and, and so forth. I don't know that that's much better, but it's certainly better than this. Mm-hmm.